Welcome to my podcast, Musings of a Christian Philosopher, where we talk about deep and often challenging topics of theology and philosophy. I'm your host, Adam Polstra. Let's get started. Hello, hello. It has been a cold one where I am at today, getting my work done. I hope wherever you're at, you are enjoying your weather and your day. What has been on my mind? I have been thinking about revival. Now, yes, I do mean that in the Christian sense of the word, but let's look at the etymology of revival first and foremost. Revival, of course, is the concept of something that has been dead or dormant or something to that effect and being brought back to animation, to life, to action. Now, the Christian concept, or at least the general churchian concept of revival, the sort of thing that if you're more among the evangelical circles, as I often have been, uh, you hear about you hear them talk about over and over again. Uh, what they typically mean by revival is this super spiritual, passionate, uh, you know, the energy of religious Christianity, or not even necessarily religious, but just passionate, spiritual, and sometimes, yes, religious Christianity is revived, and people become, once again, passionate and uh, serious about their Christianity, and so on and so forth. And what I've been thinking about is, is that really what revival is? See, I have the same issue with the word revival as I have with the issue, the idea that the second coming of Jesus is going to be at such and such a time and place. And that problem is repetition. I can't think of a time where I haven't heard both of these messages at some point or other over and over again. Oh, Jesus is coming back at such and such a time. There's some new book or some new video or something like that, proving by going through scripture and looking at history and so on that Jesus will be coming now at this time and so on, this month, this year. And similarly, particularly around uh, New Year's or some other important time of year, oh, there's a revival going on over here. There's going to be a revival in this community, in this church, so on and so forth, so on and so forth. And what actually happens? Sometimes, well, as far as the second coming of Jesus, obviously, uh, that hasn't happened yet. I've often considered the idea of having a shirt uh, written with, a, printed with all of the predict, past predicted dates of the return of Jesus all crossed out, and then at the very bottom, ah, but this time, on this date, he'll be coming. With revival, sometimes, yeah, something does actually happen. And then, and then what? There might be some continued good for a while. But as far as I have seen, it just kind of fizzles out. Now, even if it is a fairly serious revival, in the sense of what I will be arguing in a bit here, uh, human nature is human nature, and eventually that which was will pass. So the fizzling out, more or less, is something that I expect. But I wouldn't expect 
the strong word revival when attributed to Christians being passionate about their Christianity, I wouldn't expect that to be something that fizzles out quite so easily as it appears to. We hear about a revival, say, in the East Coast or the West Coast, and then what? Does it spread? Does it do much of anything? See, the idea of revival as being this sort of spiritual awakening or something like that, as far as I can tell, is really only a reality with modern Christians. And the church, particularly since the, probably since the Reformation, if not since the rise of the Catholic Church. I don't really know on the latter. I'd have to do more research on the point. Anyway. But what I have been wondering about is what is revival deep, much more deeply in the past? What did it take for revival to break out in ancient Israel? Was it just this reviving of a spiritual and religious passion? Well, there certainly was that in it, yes. But revival always came at a deep and abiding cost. What was that cost? Well, it's practically in the name. It is rejecting the dead. That which is dead, corrupt, no good anymore to genuine followers of God is to be discarded. It is to be abandoned as the corruption and as the evil that it is, and the new is to be embraced. The new, which is in another sense a return to that which was before. That which was before the corruption began to come into the community. What it really boils down to is abandoning the ways of one's own fathers and mothers, grandfathers and grandmothers, and so on. To admit full on that it was evil what they had done, the things that they had done. And then moving forward into the new. And if that is true, then it is also then revival itself is also agony. Because, of course, for us to have a tight-knit community, the tightest of all, of course, being our own immediate family, to reject the way that they live, whether that be by confronting them and they repent, or by confronting them and they don't repent, and then, of course, by necessity, you go forward and continue to be righteous in your own life. Either way, that is a great deal of Maybe agony, yes, especially if you end up having to separate to defoo, essentially, or at very least a great deal of stress in confronting them with their evil. Now, why is it that in modern day this pattern is not repeated? I'll get back to that question, but first I want to go through some examples of how this actually occurred in the scriptures in the Old Testament. When the kings started rising up, and post-Solomon, you know, the split off of the kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Judah, particularly in the, among the kingdom of Judah, there were some bad kings and some good kings. One of the most poignant points of this change was when you had the king Manasseh, who was, at least for a while, one of the very worst in the entire history of the kingdom of Judah post-Solomon. Sacrificing his children, 
Uh, it didn't even say that he was taking on the wickedness of the kings of Israel, which is said about a bunch of other bad kings of Judah. It said that Manasseh took on the corruption of the nations surrounding Judah and Israel, took, taking on their sins, their worships, their gods, their practices, sacrificing his own children once again, and so on. Now, what's interesting about Manasseh, this is a bit of a digression and a side note, but what is, in, is interesting about Manasseh is when you go through his story in the books of the Chronicles, you find out that he did, in fact, repent. And this might have been uh, later on, once he was taken into exile. And this might have been the process that brought us to the King Josiah. Now, the King Josiah, I can't remember if he was the son or grandson of Manasseh, but whatever the case, Josiah was one of the best kings of Israel. And what he specifically had to do in order to follow God was to admit, to embrace the plain fact that his own fathers were terrible, that they had gone against the commands of God, and he had to rip down the altars that they had set up, even those that had been set up generations prior, he changed the practices. He was the first king, good king of Israel, who even took down the altars in the mountains, which was a common thing. An interesting additional side note, the altars up in the mountains were often used, Solomon himself using it towards the God of Judah, the God of Israel, yes, but not the, in the prescribed manner. And it's also interesting that God apparently accepted that even though it wasn't in the prescribed manner, i.e., when Solomon went up to the hills and into the mountains and sacrificed, that was when he had the dream where God gave him wisdom as per his request. He wasn't worshiping where he was supposed to worship, and yet God responded. Anyway, Josiah was one of the, was the first king who went back to the grassroots. He did two notable things that no other king was willing to do in his passionate zeal for God. He, again, took down the mountain altars. And then secondly, he conducted a Passover feast, as, were, as the Israelites were commanded to do, that had not been done since the days of Samuel, before the kings even started. I think I mentioned that very recently in the podcast as well. Anyway, but the main point that I'm trying to draw out here is that Josiah had to reject the ways of his own forefathers. He had to admit that what they had done is evil. Now, furthermore, when we get to the time of uh, Nehemiah and Ezra, Ezra and Nehemiah being the book order in the scriptures in the Old Testament, the Israelites essentially did the same thing. They came together and corporately spoke out that what their forefathers had done was go against God, and what they had done was evil. What they had done was unrighteous. And it was after having done this that revival broke out among the Israelites. Now, I don't mean that it was only after that. That was part of the process of the revival. But, of course, obviously, if they did not fully reject the evils of their forefathers and mothers, then certainly they could not have had revival. Why? Because if they continued to embrace the ways of their fathers, then they wouldn't be turning back to God at all. Now, back to the earlier question. 
why is it that in modern day we seem to gloss over this point? We just have this raw concept of some spiritual revival of passion, and no real action beyond that is taken except maybe going to church more often and having more prayer time or something like that. And my answer to that is twofold. One, we've already gone through in this podcast, though it was a much earlier episode. Honor thy father and thy mother so that you will live long in the land the Lord your God has given you. If we think that in order, as as I think modern Christians and especially the churchians do, if we think that honoring thy father and thy mother means that you should simply keep relationship with them, you should excuse and justify their behavior, you should be okay with them, no matter what, you should maintain some form of contact, although I kind of repeat myself there. If that is what you think honor your father and mother means, then by definition, you are accepting their lifestyle to a certain extent. Now, I've made this argument a number of times before, but it bears some repeat. If you maintain relationship with people who are living a particular lifestyle, then you are, by your actions, approving of that lifestyle. To use a bit of a different sort of analogy, if you believe that a certain surface, maybe it's um, the top of a rock, right, and it's got some moisture, some moss maybe, if you believe that that surface is filled with highly toxic and viral substances, or bacteria that will just tear you apart, are you going to touch it? Well, of course not, unless you have some sort of a suicide complex. Or death knoll the Thanatos complex, as Jung called it. If, on the other hand, you think that a surface, say a countertop, is fully sterile, cleaned well, and has no contaminants, then you're going to be perfectly fine interacting with that surface. Human relationships are somewhat similar. We do not maintain relationships with people who we truly believe are going to destroy us. Of course not. Take a look at it politically. When we label somebody as racist or homophobic, xenophobic, or whatever, I'm not justifying any of these terms, nor the labeling people they're with. They become a pariah. We don't want to even touch them. Or in the church, if somebody falls into a particular category, they don't even have to be sinning. They just have to fall into a category that the church has largely moralized. It may not even be moral, or maybe it's, it is a moral category, but we have labeled it as something more serious than any other sin, maybe some sort of sexual sin, there is a tendency for us to treat them as if they are going to infect us. If we dare to touch them, if we dare to get close, if we dare to have relationship with them. But this all tends to get turned on its head when it comes to certain kinds of people. And there are two groups. The first is parents. And the second is long-time relationships. 
and not just parents, by the way, but immediate family, including some relatives, sometimes such as cousins and aunts and uncles, maybe grandparents as well. But getting back to the question of honoring thy father and thy mother, what does it really mean? Well, going back to what I was just talking about, when King Josiah, as well as the Israelites after the time of exile, fully and publicly stated that what their parents had done was evil, were they honoring their parents or dishonoring their parents? Again, I've used this argument before, though not with King Josiah. Now, if you say that they were dishonoring their parents by calling what they had done evil, then what you are arguing is that in order to follow God, they had to go against the commandments of God. That doesn't make sense. Now, if on the other hand, they were honoring their parents by committing to the point, the truth, that what they had done is evil, then that is consistent, but it also breaks the modern concept of honoring. So what does it really mean to honor? Does it honor anyone, in particular your own parents, to treat them as if they are five? Would you, would you find that very honoring? Now the fact of the matter is, many a corrupt and abusive parent does in fact want to be treated, in fact insists on being treated as if they are something like 12 or maybe 5 or even worse. Maybe an infant. Now, if you give in to that, and you do continue to treat them, especially once you're out on your own, an adult in your own right, and taking care of your own needs, if you continue to give in to that demand, silent or explicit, though very, very rarely, if ever, explicit, treating them like a teenager or, an in, or a child or a babe, are you honoring them? Well, I should say not. What does it mean to honor a person? Now, let's say that you, we are dealing with a corrupt, abusive elder, whether that be a parent or teacher or grandparent. And their conduct is showing you essentially nothing but what you shouldn't do because they are so corrupt. Do you honor them again by giving into their demands? Well, obviously not, because they're asking to be treated like a child. And why are they being asked to be treated like a child? Because they want to assume no responsibility whatsoever for anything that they're doing. Of course they don't. We talked about this on the podcast before. They want justification. They want to be thought of as innocent when they are nothing of the kind. They insist on being like a kid and being liable for none of their actions. And not just a child, but a belligerent and um, rebellious child would probably be the way, best way to put it right now. Do we honor them by giving into it? Absolutely not. Now, would we honor them if we insisted on treating them as the adults that they at least are physically? Or another way of putting it, would we honor them by honoring the good that they point us to even in the negative? Right? Because in order to do good, 
when it comes to their corruption and abuse, you have to do the opposite. Is that closer to honoring? Well, I should say yes. This really mixes in with the similar issue we have with the word love. Jesus, if he was indeed and is the Son of God, then by definition, everything he did had to be out of love. Or John was full of, full of it, full of something, when he called God love. So if every action that, God, that Jesus took was loving, then how about the times that he was harsh? How about the times that he called the Pharisees hypocrites? And so on. Was that also loving? Well, if you do believe in Jesus as the Son of God, then you have to answer yes. But then that also means that to call people out on their crap, to confront them, to do what Jesus himself advised us to do in the church, which is first to confront personally, then to confront with a few witnesses, then, if they still won't listen, to confront with the church and the elders, and if they still won't listen, to teach them, uh, treat them rather as a tax collector and a Gentile. I think it was actually a pagan was the word that he used. All of that, if Jesus is indeed the Son of God, has to be love. But a whole lot of churchians would recoil at both of these concepts. That to honor is to, conf is to honor the adult, even if the, your adult parent is not acting like an adult. And to love is, when evil is afoot, to confront or even to abandon. Because again, Jesus specifically tells us to do that. Treat them as a tax collector and a pagan. In the context of that time when he said that, it meant treat them as a pariah. Which is in keeping with my earlier points. If you actually believed that a person was going to corrupt you deeply, you would not have a relationship with that person. But because we think that honoring essentially means excusing, justifying, being okay with, passing, allowing this person to get away with essentially whatever, then of course we do not do that. We in fact go against the very commandments that we are given. Now the second group of people is again those who we have been in relationship with for some time. It might be a childhood friend. Now, this goes somewhat deeper into not necessarily a churchian value, but I think a Western value, as I take it. I don't have enough experience to fully confirm this, but I think it is fairly common. In the West, if not at least among the churchians, it is fundamentally believed, in my opinion, that to maintain all relationships to the best of our ability, no matter what, is the greatest good. We have to keep people close, especially if we, ha we have had relationship with them a long, for a long time. So, in other words, when such a person that we have known, say, for two years, four years, ten years, twenty years, begins to become corrupt, the most important thing, then, is not to confront them, because that would mean facing the possibility 
that that relationship is ruined. No, in fact, it is to maintain the relationship pretty much no matter the cost, which is asinine. All that it really does in the long run is make sure that corruption remains. Remember when I was quoting the full commandment to honor thy father and thy mother? What is the latter part of it? As Paul points out, it's the only one with a promise. So that you may live long in the land the Lord your God has given you. In context, that was being said to the Israelites. To whom God was giving the land of Israel, as it was eventually known. Now, how did they honor their parents? Well, leading up to the exile, a lot of the time they honored them in the way that I have just been describing is incorrect. At least it would, it would appear so. Why? Because they continue to live just as their parents were living when they were in sin. And this eventually got them exiled. So, in my opinion, they failed Overall, not in every generation, but in most of the generations, they failed to honor their father and their mothers, fathers and their mothers. And as a result, what happened? They did not live long in the land the Lord their God was giving them. In other words, it should be obvious, given the commandments that, and the warnings that God gave the Israelites from the olden days, from the days of Moses, that is, it should be quite plain that honoring thy father and thy mother should lead to moral living. Why? Because moral living was the only way the Israelites were going to maintain living in the land of Israel at all. He warns it very early on that if they abandoned the ways of God, they would suffer, they would have great pain, great agony, and they would be exiled. They'd be chased away by their enemies, and they would no longer have the land. And again, the only commandment in the Ten that is given this particular promise, this particular condition, if you will, is honoring thy father and thy mother. So plainly, honoring thy father and thy mother must lead to moral living. But if you are accepting an evil lifestyle by quote-unquote honoring your parents, then you're doing the direct opposite. And therefore, it cannot be honoring your father and your mother. In the same way, if we think that maintaining relationships with long-standing friendships and acquaintanceships and so on is the greatest good, then we will suffer into suffer within ourselves the same corruption. Of course we will. So the fact that in the West we think that honoring thy father and thy mother is the same as excusing, and that maintaining relationships no matter what the cost is the greatest good, how on earth will we ever have real revival? It's in the freaking name. To revive means, as I said at the very beginning, to take that which is dead, corrupted, dissolved, destroyed, although I didn't use all those terms at first, and bring it back to life. Bring it back to form, 
repair, whatever, however you exactly want to put it. So the real essence of, or maybe not the essence, but the real requirements for revival definitely and must include abandoning the wickedness of the past. Of course. Otherwise, there is not any real revival taking place in the first place because you are not doing the first step. You are not undoing the death that was in order to bring in the life that can be. So if we continue to believe that revival is just this spiritual, passionate gobbledygook, hocus-pocus, mumbo-jumbo, whatever, we're not having revival at all. We're not abandoning the death in order to embrace the life at all. So yes, in my opinion, if we're going to have revival in our communities, we have to take a genuine look at the past, find the death and the corruption, and tell the freaking truth. So, that's all I had for us today. I hope you find it very interesting and worth thinking about. Until next time.